It's Healthcare Unfiltered, and it's your host, Shadi Nabhan. As you know, I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and my podcast covers a lot of things in healthcare, mentorship, leadership, policy, new treatments, clinical advances, and everything else that is of interest. It covers oncology and non-oncology diseases. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you tuning in for this podcast, and I promise that I'll continue to bring you new content day in, well, week in and week out. Uh, you can follow this podcast on all podcast outlets. You can watch this podcast on my YouTube channel, Shadi Navhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let me know what you think by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Navhan or through my website, shadinabhan.com. Today's podcast is about skin diseases, cancers, and non-cancers with a focus on disparities. What triggered this podcast in my mind was that I was asked by a colleague uh, about a skin lesion. The uh, my my friend my friend was dark skinned, was uh, from the uh, Middle East, and had. Uh, uh, a lesion uh, that uh, I was asked about and um, with the idea that this cannot be melanoma because um, he was dark skinned. And I said, well, actually, I mean, I'm not saying it is melanoma, but uh, melanoma does occur in folks who are not necessarily Caucasian. That really sparked an idea that, you know, I'm not really sure if there are a lot of people who realize that uh, melanoma as a skin cancer and non-melanoma skin cancers do occur in different populations, different ethnicities, different races. And uh, it's not only happening in fair-skinned people, although certainly the fair skin might be uh, might position this population at a higher risk for developing the sun-related melanoma. So I've invited a dermatologist, dermato-oncologist, dermatopathologist, and a medical oncologist with special expertise in cutaneous malignancies on the Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about this. And we are going to talk also about non-skin cancers, specifically uh, hydrotinitis superativa, which is a disease that uh, you all should be aware of. Uh, this is more, uh, this podcast is along the lines of uh, educational clinical advances uh, series, if you will. And I have doctors Sue Park from UCSD and Farah Abdullah, who was previously at the City of Hope and currently at Karis Life Sciences. Very grateful for my guests to take time of their busy schedule to be on the show. This podcast is being taped for context on October 9, 2023. Now, don't forget to rate, subscribe to the show, and let me know what you think about Like we said, write a brief review, tell your friends and your colleagues about the show. Also, listen to my other podcasts, The Hemonk Pulse, uh, that also airs every two weeks on Thursdays. And if you are in the mood to read a book, what other book are you going to read if it's not Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice? Without further ado, Dr. Spark and Abdullah on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking skin cancers and beyond with a focus on disparities. So we'll start with Sue Park, Dr. Park. Introduce yourself just a little bit to listeners and viewers of Healthcare Unfiltered. Yeah, thanks so much. So my name is Sue Park. I'm an associate professor um, at UC San Diego, and I'm a cutaneous oncologist. And um, I'm really glad to be here today with you both. 
And so you're a medical oncologist by training. Yes, medical oncology. Right. And and my listeners will now understand that it's kind of it's not a coincidence that mo- the two guests I have today they live in California, where the sun is always there, and the topic is about skin stuff. Uh, Farah, please introduce yourself. Yeah, um, my name is Farah Abdullah. I am a dermatologist, dermatopathologist, and cutaneous lymphologist <laughs> by training, um, and currently the senior medical director at Cares. But your training was a little bit different than Sue, right? I mean, like yeah. Sue obviously did internal medicine, medical oncology. You went mm-hmm. through the dermatology route, and then you had an interest in dermato-oncology, which I really think will make really this is a very interesting conversation. So, Sue, let, let, I mean, there, there's a lot that has over the past really 10 years or so, so many advances happened in melanoma. And I and during my training as a resident and a fellow, I could never forget how awful this disease when it metastasizes was. And and it's almost becoming like um, like a chronic disease, not quite, but but hopefully we're heading this way. But before we get some of the new treatments, I'm I'm curious about when you think of melanoma. We'll talk about melanoma, non-melanoma, and we'll talk about non-cancerous diseases. In melanoma, what's the notion in terms of you know how this happened in various races and ethnicities, like between folks who are dark-skinned, folks who are Asian, folks who are from Africa, from because there's a lot of this um, that folks may not really know. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think a lot of people, you know, associate the development of melanoma with sun exposure from UV radiation. And there's a lot of data that supports that. Um, I think that data is more stronger in non-melanoma, but there's other types of melanomas that are not associated with sun exposure. And those tend to occur more commonly in the non-Caucasian populations. And so there is disparity in melanoma care um, across ethnicities and races. And, um, you know, but we have treatments for all these types of melanoma and, you know, melanoma treatment has changed a lot since 2010. And so I think educating everyone about the different types of melanoma, not all melanoma is the same. Not all melanoma is driven by the sun is really important. So, so, and we'll go over that, but Farah, can you do anything to, to prevent melanoma? I mean, the sun driven melanoma, yes. And I think the problem that we have from the dermatology perspective is people still think that if they have fair skin, they're the ones who have to use sunscreen. Um, And so we have quite the disparity in education of people who have darker skin colors um, or darker or or higher numbers of Fitzpatrick skin type, because we're not reaching people well enough to say you also need sunscreen. Um, I also think lately it's, it's been kind of nice though, because sun protection has also um, I think people are recognizing it before, like there was a lot of, I can't wear this. The sunscreen wasn't made for my skin. I can't protect my skin. Um, at least now people are realizing despite their skin color, they should, and that there are newer products that are coming out that are actually made for the darker skin types as well. So let me understand this, this just to understand. So there's a, there's a sun related melanoma and a non sun related melanoma. Correct. Yes. Um, and I think most people think that it's always sun related. Um, And so because they believe it's always sun related and it's only people who would tend to sunburn like lighter skin types, that's where we have a problem. Um, Is that it's like explaining to people that not all lung cancer is caused by smoking. Um, I think it's the same thing as like, there's a certain, there's a common cause, but there are also other causes that when you add them up are as significant as the most common cause. So what are the non-sun thing, like the non-sun things that uh, 
that may lead to melanoma. So, I mean, just randomly, it could occur regardless of sun exposure at all, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there are genetic reasons to develop melanoma, um, as I believe Sue was alluding to. But also now we deal with a significant immune suppressed population as well. So maybe it could have been sun related, but your body could have taken care of it. Now, because we're suppressing your immune system, you're more likely to not be able to undo the multiple hits you're getting. Um, and it can progress um, more quickly and it can progress in cases where it wouldn't have before. So, so, so for, for the sun-related melanoma, all what we could do is, um, I don't know, avoid sun and put SPF uh, on whatever, right? Um, these sunblocks, they have they have different grades. They put 15, 30. So, I mean, is this, how much of this is a marketing thing or really this higher number protects more than the lower number? Uh, so I am not an expert in SPF like I think Farah is, but um, what I've also been told and what I've learned is that I think a minimum of SPF 30 is what we typically recommend. And I think the more important thing is to let patients know that you can't just apply it once. It doesn't last all day. You have to reapply throughout the day, especially if you're also in the water or working out heavily and sweating a lot. Um, and there are a lot of great products out now for patients with darker skin tones. I recently told one of my patients who is African-American about um, a website I found called like Black Girl Skin Care. And they have products that are specifically for darker skin tones because some of the sunscreens can make darker skin tones look really ashy. And um, so... It, you know, there's now like sprays, there's like, you know, lotions, there's creams, there's all different types of ways you can apply sunscreen. So I think it's just really important to tell patients, find the product that works best for you and the one that you're most likely going to apply and keep applying. But then the, the, the non-sun related melanomas occur more in non-white, non-Caucasian patients, or it doesn't matter? No, so the non-sun melanoma, so like you can get like an acral melanoma, a mucosal melanoma, those um, occur with more frequency in the non-white populations like the Hispanic population or the African-American population. And for those patients, because it's probably not sun related, you know, it's really important to do skin checks at home and also to really get education from, you know, not only you know dermatology, but your primary care doctor that if you find an odd skin lesion in an area that doesn't see the sun, that doesn't go away, you should really let your primary care doctor know so you can get it checked out. You know, a lot of patients might not know that you can get you know, these other types of melanomas and they see a lesion on the bottom of their foot and they don't think about you know, that is anything, but, you know, those may turn out to be a, a pretty deep melanoma and we have treatments for that if found early. So is the, is, is the, is it the same issue for the non-melanoma, you know, for, for listeners who are listening to there are other types of cancer that are not melanomas like basal cells, squamous cells, these ones that frankly, most people, the general population don't think much of, like I had a squamous cell, what's the big deal? I've had a basal cell, what's the big deal? So Farah, is it a big deal? Like, do we undermine a problem or like, what's, what, what are your thoughts on? And I'm sure you've heard that yeah. from other people. Yeah, I think, so I'm going to start out with my view is skewed because I often see the ones that do end up becoming something having usually always worked in, um, in cancer centers. So yes, we're lucky. Most of the time a BCC or an SCC found early is usually indolent. The times that we get really concerned are, you know, we have people that it's out of sight, out of mind. 
um, oh, it's there, it's crusty, it's a little red. And then they just let it go and let it go and let it go for years. And you take a potentially treatable problem and make it untreatable. We also do have issues, again, where most SCCs are sun-related, but as Sue can tell you, a lot of times we'll find that it's actually HPV-related. Um, and then that becomes a really big problem in people who are immune-suppressed for various issues. The, whether the skin be, stuff HPV-related? Yeah, like not BCCs, but SCCs or squamous cell carcinomas can be HPV-related um, and driven. And that really becomes an issue if you're on a drug for... Um, an autoimmune disease that suppresses your immune system. If you've had a transplant, whether it be a renal, a lung, or a hematologic transplant, um, those cancers need to be seen sooner. And luckily, the sooner they're seen, um, whether it's HPV-driven or whether it's um, due to sunlight, can be easily treated quickly in most cases. But they need to be seen and treated quickly and definitively sooner rather than later. Um, otherwise, we're seeing a lot of cases that then, unfortunately, you are passed from the dermatologist to the oncologist to do more than, um, you know, what most people know of for skin cancer, which is either scraping it or cutting it out. Then you're seeing an oncologist for actual systemic therapy. But, the, but these ones, Farah, they only happen because of sun or do they also like melanoma have non-sun related causes? Both. So they can have majority happen because of sun, but they can also happen you due mentioned to non-sun yeah, non-sun related causes. And so for HP for SCC, HPV is a big driver. And so the same question, I mean, the non-melanoma stuff, you know, if you're African-American, if you're Asian, if you're Hispanic, do you have, do you worry about these things as well as a possibility or it's not as, I'm sure it could happen, but I mean, how 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 do you see this compared to the melanoma in the non non-Caucasian population? Yeah, so non-melanoma is mostly driven by the sun, but like as Farah mentioned, I see a lot of solid organ transplant patients who are all different types of races and ethnicities, and they really need close skin care follow-up because the medicines they're on put them at increased risk for these non-melanoma skin cancers, which can get pretty nasty when you're on these immunosuppressive drugs. I do also see, um, you know, I have a fair number of patients that even though they're non-white, they do have non-melanoma as well. So I think it just goes to show that, you know, skin cancer doesn't really care what color you are. Um, it's just really important, especially if you have additional risk factors for skin cancer to just get plugged in, you know, with a dermatologist or your, or your primary care doctor. Um, because the earlier we find these uh, skin cancers, you know, people like Farah can treat them. But if they advance really badly, you know, then you need to see someone like me. Unfortunately, we have a lot of good treatments now. But if you're in the, you know, solid organ transplant population, that's where our treatment is still limited. And so, you know, we're still doing a lot of research to, you know, find better treatments for those people. You know, Farah, I mean, I'm sure all of us, like the three of us, have always, you know, sometimes a friend of yours stop you, a family member, hey, can you just take a look at this spot or wherever it is? And, you know, we all have some of these, like, you know, tiny things sometimes. And, and and you know, you can't really keep running to the doctor every time you see something. So is there is there anything that, that just may should make the person a little bit more alarmed? Because we all have these tiny things in our bodies. I principally tell people if it's new and it's growing quickly, and by quickly, I mean like within a month or two, you're seeing a change. That's something you should definitely show to your primary care doctor. I think that also, you know, when we're going for our yearly physicals and the doctor says, please get into a gown, get into a gown and let the physician take a look at you from head to toe 
Um, one thing actually that Sue was mentioning is like mucosal melanomas, right? So people think, oh, skin cancer, I just need to look at my skin surface. But I can't tell you the number of times people have things growing in their mouth and you you don't know because you don't look in there regularly. So letting a clinician um, take a look at areas that are difficult to see, like behind your ears, your neck, the back of your neck, meaning um, you know, inside your mouth. I think those are really important. Um, besides things that are growing rapidly, if things are bleeding, if things are painful, definitely showing them to a physician. And I think we live in a day and age where it's become easier, um, meaning that if there was one upside to COVID, it was that we really now do do teledermatology. So taking a picture and emailing it to your clinician has become much easier and, and, and should be utilized as much as possible. I know that when I look in my physician's portal, there's always attach a photo or attach a document as an option. Um, so if that's something that, you know, it, it can give you real, it can give you peace of mind sooner, but it's also great for the clinician to be like, yeah, it's worth the drive in. You really do need to come in. I really do need to take a look at this. This really does need to come off. So, okay. Can I tell you the biggest problem that patients face and people face with dermatology? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. It's I impossible think I know it to get in to see a dermatologist. Yeah. I mean, Honest to God, I mean, I know this is not the topic of this conversation, but no, but... some of my listeners are going to say, okay, and then they'll call and they'll get an appointment May 2024. No, I was trying to help uh, a colleague of mine to get to see an allergist. And she called in mid-September and she was given uh, March 2024. And a primary care, I mean, they said, sometimes it's just not to call, like, we'll call you and you'll never hear back. It's really a problem. I mean, it's it's honestly a big, big problem. And I, I have to say that oncologists probably do the best <laughs> in trying to get people in because we have to. But some of the other things, I don't know how we solve this problem. That's probably another topic for a completely entire podcast. Um, Agreed, very much. So let's go over treatment a little bit. Um, Sue, you, you, for when it comes to melanoma, uh, you mentioned that over the past ten years, I mean, things things have 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 changed significantly. How how so? Like, what's what what should somebody who has an early melanoma expect, and somebody with a late melanoma or metastatic disease expect nowadays? Yeah. So for early melanoma, most of those patients will see for all. And then, um, you know, she may refer them to another surgeon, or she may be able to, you know, advise them on you know, who, who else they need to see. Um, but even with early melanoma now, a lot of the treatments that we have for advanced melanoma are moving to earlier stages. And so I think that just really highlights the importance of clinical trials. We didn't have all these new drugs for melanoma that I'll touch upon in a little bit if we weren't for clinical trials. We had these clinical trials starting in like 2011. And since then, you know, we've had so many drugs approved and they changed the lives for patients with even, you know, metastatic melanoma. We have these patients living, what, six, seven years out now. Um, so for late stage melanoma or advanced melanoma, you typically see an oncologist like me, um, and we will often, you know, send your tumor for, you know, um, sequencing just to see, you know, what other characteristics there are. But we have a lot of treatment options now. We don't use chemotherapy anymore to treat melanoma. You know, that's back in the day. So we'll use immunotherapy, um, which we got through clinical trials, or we'll use targeted therapy. So we have pills that, um, that can work for some patients if your melanoma has a specific mutation. 
Um, and sometimes we can, you know, sequence these in a different way. Sometimes we'll, you know, we also have injectable drugs now that are approved for melanoma that we use in certain situations. So the landscape has really changed. So in early stage, when uh, patients are resected, do all patients require additional therapy after resection or some patients you just resect and don't do anything after that? Yeah, so a lot of patients, they just need resection and sometimes they'll get a sentinel lymph node biopsy and if the pathology looks okay, you know, they should just, you know, see their dermatologist on a regular basis just to make sure they get regular skin checks. But even nowadays, you know, we now have immune therapy that was only approved for, you know, metastatic patients and we're moving it into earlier lines of therapy to the point where, you know, some of these patients it may be appropriate for them to get one year of immune therapy after surgery, even if it was considered to be more of an earlier stage. Let's shift a little bit to, um, I want to go to metastatic disease in a little bit. I want to go to the basal cell and the squamous cell. If you're able to remove, you remove and you monitor, right? Is There's nothing you do afterwards in terms of surgery, regardless of how big it is? Well, regardless of how big it is, you always have monitoring. Now the guidelines aren't very clear on how often to monitor. And so often it's left up to the dermatologist to very much personalize that follow-up monitoring um, with the patient. So for instance, if I get a patient um, who maybe has one basal cell and doesn't have a lot of sun damage, I can probably for the first year see them a little bit more frequently. And if they don't have any new lesions and they've been, they're really good about sun protection, it can probably be yearly. But then I have patients who have significant sun damage. Every time I see them, they've got a new skin cancer, whether it's a squamous cell or a basal cell. And those people I'm probably going to see every three months very regularly because they will probably have a skin cancer in an area that's not detectable. Almost everything they have really does need um, biopsy. And then we're also entering um, a new phase for them of chemo prevention, meaning like using topical chemotherapies to try and prevent precursor lesions that could lead to full right. skin cancers. Right. So it's really, I think the difficulty in providing guidelines for follow-up um, and detection are there because the variability in people's sun exposure, skin type, and follow-up on their own of like using these sunscreens and, and sun protective clothing are so variable. So it's really, really has to be personalized between the physician and patient. So are there any known differences in outcomes, responses uh, based on race and ethnicity? Um, or is it just not studied? Like if, if everything is the same, so you have the same access, we're not talking about, you know, you, you can get the drug, you can undergo surgery, um, and you can undergo monitoring. If you have all of these equal uh, do we know if there's any differences just simply because of some whatever uh, characteristics are based on race and ethnicity? Yeah, I don't think we know that information as in, in much detail as we would like. But if everything was the same, meaning, you know, access to care, access to specialists, you know, timely access to immune therapy, um, then I think the outcomes should be relatively the same. But I think we're still doing a lot of research as to whether, you know, any genomic or genetic differences based on your race or ethnicity do influence um, your outcomes. But if everything were the same, um, the outcome should be the same. But we know that there have been recent studies where, you know, we know the outcome is not the same because of access to care. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was wondering, like, if there's like a, I don't know, a mutation, a biomarker, like something uh, on the genetic level that may actually uh, lead to resistance to a particular therapy or something of that nature. But, uh, um, but I'm not, I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, we're hopefully, um, you know, we're still doing a lot of research in melanoma now. And I think that's one of the areas that a lot of people are focusing on. Para, same question in basal cell and squamous. Do we know, I mean, African-American, let's say, versus Caucasian differences in outcomes? Uh, I, I don't know. I think the issue here is that the majority of skin cancers, regardless of race, are usually early stage and right. so are removed surgically. And so there aren't a lot of studies across the board in general doing genomic sequencing to look at that. Like even some of the things that are on the market are very limited in profile. So there's a real kind of tug there of like what is going to produce financial toxicity versus what's not. So even just like sequencing on the very basic of level is difficult to do in any population just because we have an easy go-to, we have easy go-to therapies. I was going to say compared to metastatic melanoma or just advanced stage melanoma where there is a lot of sequencing, we actually don't have a ton of sequencing done in advanced stage SCC. So there's no real targeted therapy there in general for any population. I mean, there's immunotherapy, as, as Sue can tell you, but beyond immunotherapy, there's nothing. It's that even isn't even really targeted. We're looking at what like PD-1 and CMB, but we're not looking beyond that. So I think it's a real struggle to even justif justify looking um, at targets yeah. in general for any population, which I would hope would actually be the next horizon that we look at. Because we think advanced SCCs can be just as deadly as melanoma, and the deaths per year of advanced SCC are actually higher than melanoma. So, And in metastatic disease, Sue, you mentioned, you know, obviously advances, anything specific there in metastatic disease that is intriguing you or just, you know, making you um, on the lookout for that might actually lead to significant advances? I mean, cell therapy is something that's, you know, coming on the horizon. And I think that, um, you know, it's a really interesting um, treatment modality. The same problem with cell therapy is that access to cell therapy is going to be really limited to academic centers. And it's a really intensive and laborious process that's only, you know, probably appropriate for a certain patient population that's pretty fit. But we have all these clinical trials now looking at different drugs to overcome, you know, immunotherapy resistance, other targeted agents, ways to combine things, ways to sequence things, ways to combine things with radiation, um, injectable agents that are new, utilizing viruses, um, so I think the future is really bright. And then uh, I want to shift just a little bit to non-skin cancer. I in fact, Farah and I were having this conversation offline about a month ago. I, I was uh, because I, I was asked by a colleague of mine about a, a disease that is not uh, cancerous, uh, and I'm going to slaughter the name Farah, but uh, superative hydranitis, right? Did I slaughter the name? Oh. Hydranitis separativa. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was close. It was close. Like, we were close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So what what's that for the non physician in the in the room or in the audience non medical professional what is that disease? Yeah. So in layman's terms, it's like boils or what looks to be boils that arise principally um, in in an area of certain glands that we have on our body called apocrine glands. So they tend to these kind of boils or or nodules can arise like in your armpit area, groin area, buttock area. Um, and even frequently like um, in the underneath the breast area. 
um, the the causative factors keep going back and forth, but principally where you're going to see those boils is, is in those particular areas. It affects women um, more than men, and it, it disproportionately affects um, the Black population. So definitely you can see cases, and 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 I have seen cases in, in Caucasian men, but you're going to see more of this effect like um, Black women. And so the therapies that are there for this disease are so I but mean, but to, pa to pause, to pause oh, a yeah. little bit yeah. this is yeah. this is a different scenario this is because the squamous cell and the basal cell and the melanoma we we believe yeah. they're more common in caucasians maybe because sun exposure yeah. this one is completely the reverse completely the reverse yes and under under recognized and diagnosed and usually treated in much later stages is there a reason why it happens? Uh, is there some genetic component to it or predisposition in it that happens in African-Americans more common? Yeah, it's, you know, there there are several researchers, particularly, um, you know, in more urban areas, so I'd say San Francisco, Chicago, New York, um, that do study this disease. There are no causative factors that have been identified um, at this time, other than like, we believe that the disease is based upon the apocrine gland and it goes back and forth if it's actually the apocrine gland or the hair follicle. So it's not like we can predict, oh, you're going to have this. And we don't know why the people that have it actually have it. So just based on the types of patients that come in with the disease, we could be descriptive, but as for more driving factors, there's nothing that's a consensus based at this time. So you don't see these uh, patients, I presume, unless somebody thinks they're cancers and they come to you. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I, I, when I was in, I didn't do melanoma, but I don't recall seeing these patients myself. Yeah, I actually have a couple of patients with this condition, but their condition is really bad. I mean, they have like, um, you know, sinus tracts and like really bad scarring everywhere. And I see them because they have this area of chronic inflammation, you know, related to the hydroadenitis, um, superativa. And in some, you know, patients, when you have an area of chronic inflammation that, you know, creates a good environment for a squamous cell skin cancer to develop. And so, you know, some of those skin cancers I end up seeing because they can be really aggressive and um, because they're associated with chronic inflammation and those patients don't really respond very well to immune therapy that we've seen. So, um, you know, and this often happens more in the African-American population, as Farah said. So, you know, a lot of my patients, um, you know, this is how the African-American population gets these types of skin cancers. It's not always driven by the sun. It's driven by some type of chronic inflammation. And so I do have a couple of these patients. Interesting. So how do you treat those, Farah, like the hydrogenized superative? Yeah. So from very basic to very advanced. I mean, dermatologists will often start with topicals like benzoyl peroxide or clindamycin lotion, but I can't say that they do very much when someone actually has active lesions um, or the boil type lesions, not, um, you know, the tunneling type lesions or, or fistulas yet. We treat with intralesional catalog, so injecting a steroid into the area, trying to drain the area. Um, and then also there's now... We'll try and surgically excise the area that's been known for a long time, but the area can still recur even if you're excising all the African gland area, and that's not really understood again why it recurs. Um, the only FDA-approved therapy we actually have that's an injectable is Humira, so people have heard that for um, psoriasis, but it's actually FDA-approved for hydratinase, Um, That helps to suppress the inflammation. 
um, but it's not going to actually, it'll prevent any new lesions from arising, but it's not going to, you know, the tunneling or the fistulas that, that Sue was talking about, it's not going to necessarily help with those. And Humira is not curative. It may improve your quality of life while you're on it, but it, it's not a curative treatment. Um, so there's a lot still to do. You, do you give it lifelong or a time-limited therapy? So usually I've done it as a time-limited therapy, giving people breaks and we'll restart it if needed. A lot of times when people have really, really horrible disease, I'm doing it almost as a bridge to get them to surgery to have the area excised. I will say it's one of the saddest diseases. Um, I think, you know, obviously and, and rightfully so, we give cancer a lot of attention, but with hydratinitis, I've seen women lose their jobs because they can't go to they can't go to work when this area is draining, when it's purulent, when it's it's smelling. Um, they can't sit, they can't move a lot of times. So it really, I mean, there's not just like a a discomfort. It's like a complete loss of your life in a lot of ways. How how common is this? Like how I mean, it's just like very common, rare. I think that it's almost difficult to answer that question because it's under-recognized. So a lot of times people will just come in and say, oh, I've had these boils and they've been diagnosed as like a staph infection repeatedly. And so I think it's really hard to get the true um, incidence and prevalence of it just because it it's misdiagnosed with so many other things for so long and not really recognized until much later. Um, it's common enough that every urban area I've lived in can have an, a, a once a week hydratinitis separativa clinic that is filled and you probably still aren't seeing all the patients truly affected by it because someone really has to really understand, oh, this is a mimicker um, of like a MRSA infection and recognize it and send it to a dermatologist for con continuous um, follow-up. So. Uh, so, so do, do you do you, I mean do you see these patients because you have to give them the infusion uh, of Humira because the dermatologist may not be able to do that or is this given in the dermatologist's office? Um, so it's a, an at-home injection, right? So oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, but but yeah. but the dermatologist prescribes this, and the so the so so you see you see so you see those because of the possibility of secondary malignancies that occur because of the inflammatory environment around it with the squamous cell and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. What are the chances that patients do well with the, um, for the uh, hydrogenitis uh, suppurativa uh, with the treatment? I mean, they, most of them do very well, but again, it's not curative. So it's something that if it's not curative and it can rebound and there's no, I mean, we tell people lifestyle factor changes, but honestly, I've seen patients very committed to lifestyle factor changes and I don't really see a difference. I think the the one that we've seen the most that can make a difference is to stop smoking when people smoke. However, I've seen numerous patients with this disease who don't smoke. So what do you say? I mean, it's also been said, oh, it's weight-based, lose weight. I've seen patients with BMI that are very low that still have this disease. So I don't think we're we're at a point where there we know that there's nothing curative. Um Kiermaier can make it better. There can be development of resistance to treatment. And there's not a ton that's actually done to invest in this disease, which is really sad. I mean there are definitely yeah. researchers out there looking, but the the options they're they're limited in a way like there's things that we can continue to do to help them manage it but it's really managing a chronic disease so yeah. 
So in the last few minutes, um, I want to go over, um, and then I'll let you go. I know you both are very busy, but I want like unanswered questions. So I want to try to like, if somebody is listening, they, you know, they will think what's going on from a researcher perspective, put on the researcher uh, hat. What are the unanswered questions in early melanoma, in metastatic melanoma, in uh, basal cell, squamous cell, and in hydrogenitis superativa? So I'll start with you, Sue. Um, what are the top two or three questions that you guys are working on in the medical oncology field for early and late stage melanoma? Um, for late stage melanoma, it's always trying to figure out, you know, the best treatment for immunotherapy, refractory or resistant. That's a big problem. And there's lots of clinical trials trying to take a look at that. For early stage melanoma, I think we've, you know, made a lot of strides in bringing the drugs, you know, in the late stage to the forefront. I think a lot of people now really struggle with, is this treatment going to actually help me live longer? You know, and because a lot of these drugs also do have side effects and some of those side effects can be permanent. And so when you want to consider a drug that could have that type of side effects, you really want to make sure it's benefiting the patient. So um, I think, you know, there's a lot of mixed um, feelings around um, adjuvant therapy for early stage, earlier stage disease, like stage two disease. Um, but I think um, something that everyone is really working on is really trying to help the solid organ transplant population, um, especially if they have really advanced skin cancer, because unless you have a kidney transplant, you can't really get immune therapy because you have a high likelihood of killing your graft. And I have plenty of patients who have kidney transplants who tell me I'd rather die than go back on dialysis. And so really trying to find new treatment options for them that are not chemotherapy, that are also not immune-based um, is really important. So um, just to sum this up a little bit, so you mentioned something interesting, the uh, patients who are resistant to immunotherapy in metastatic disease, anything we should be on the lookout for in terms of, uh, is that the cellular therapy you're talking about? Or is something else, some other modality we should be on the lookout for? Um, I think there's a, a lot of stuff on the um, horizon right now. It's always combining some drug with the immune therapy to try to you know, um, increase the response, you know, either by altering the tumor microenvironment or, you know, making the cancer more immunogenic if it wasn't considered immunogenic before. Um, and so hopefully we'll see a lot of those trials, you know, pan out and, you know, get registration with the FDA. The cell therapy is mainly like, a, you know, a treatment for, you know, if you do have progression on immune therapy, um, but it's really for a select patient population because of the you know, how time intensive and labor intensive and access um, that's really needed to give that type of treatment. But that's something that's also coming out on the horizon that, you know, will hopefully benefit a fair number of patients. All right. Anything on the horizon for the BCC and the uh, SCC, the squamous and the basal cell? You know, I think people are really... Or the unanswered, or the unanswered questions kind of thing. Yeah. I think from a dermatologist perspective, um, we're always, is this cancer? So once we know it's cancer and we know that it's beyond, you know, the first line of therapies we send to Sue and, and the oncologists have to really wrestle with what's the right therapy. But I think from a dermatologist perspective, we're wrestling with, is this in fact cancer? Is this a, you know, mole that looks a little weird or is this truly cancer? You know, we focus on that when it comes to spitz me by in children. Is this really a melanoma or is this as a benign spitz lesion that we can just take out? Um, I think the other thing we also struggle with as dermatologists is 
you know, it would be nice if there were an easier way to tell if this is going to be metastatic to the node or other organ. So we could also, instead of having to send people for another procedure, it would be nice to be able to say, yes, you're the one who needs closer follow-up. I will surveil you more often. And what kind of surveillance techniques can we use other than just our naked eye and a generic LDH test? So, um, and that goes for both melanoma and for squamous cell carcinoma. Um, those are the two big things that I think we always come across this, particularly when we're seeing these solid organ transplants or, or patients with hematologic malignancies or, or transplants for, for that reason as well. Um, I mean, patients with like CLL or other immunosuppressive hematologic malignancies, it'd be great if we could actually find ways to say, yes, this is worrisome and I should surveil you yeah. more often. Yeah. Any unanswered questions in hadridinitis uh, superativa? Oh my gosh, I probably could take a whole other podcast for that. Well, you'll get only 60 seconds. <laughs> um, it would be great if we could support more research as to what the causative factors are. It would be great if we had more therapeutic options in general that were more meaningful. Um, I think Humira was obviously a great breakthrough, but other than that, there's there's not a ton. Um, so if we could have more options and more definitive options, that would be great. I think we could give a lot of people their lives back. Anything I should have asked you, I mean, I think what I've learned over the past 45 minutes is there are clear disparities in incidence. That's what I learned. Uh, I didn't get the impression that we know if there's a clear disparities in outcomes, although I think, Sue, to your earlier point, that there may be some research needed on this because we we don't know yet. But I, I do think it's rather an intriguing area of research that uh, hopefully we'll have answers for that. Anything else you need to leave our listeners with that I may have failed to ask you about? Sue, we start with you. No, I think you covered everything really well. I just want to highlight that, you know, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah. Farah, any thoughts, anything I should have asked you? No, again, I, I concur with Sue. I think you covered everything really well. If anything, I think in the U.S. is the ideal place to do this disparities research, because luckily we have different populations of people from all over the world. So why not start here? Well, Dr. Spark and Abdullah, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Really nice to talk to you about this. I think there's a lot of advances, a lot of things that we need to work on, but it's hopefully this was a nice primer for listeners and viewers about the variations in skin diseases, because I can assure you there is a misconception that these only happen in a particular population. And I think hopefully we shed a little bit of light into the fact that this is not the case and there's a lot of things that are ongoing and hopefully the next time i have you on we'll have more research that has been done over the past over the next few years thank you so much thank you thank you folks thank you so much for listening i appreciate you tuning in and being on this podcast Thank you to Dr. Park and Dr. Abdullah for being on this podcast. And I appreciate the fact that you were tuning in and listen. Don't forget to share this podcast with your colleagues and friends. Hopefully you know more about these diseases that you, that you knew before you listened to this podcast. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. To improve is to change. To be perfect is to change often. Until next time, take care.